Good afternoon. We're going to wait a couple minutes. Um, I'm trying. It appears that each time I try to use my ear pods, it kicks me off of Zoom. So no ear pods this afternoon. But this should work just as well, I think. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, okay. That was an interesting experience. We've all had interesting Zoom experiences, haven't we? <laughs> Seems to come with the territory. <laughs> I've learned to expect them. It works much better than getting upset when they happen. <laughs> so I'll just wait another minute. And uh, I think most people are here, but can just take this minute to settle, feel the body sitting, feel your environment if you want to, looking around, just seeing where you're at and knowing that this is your home and that you're imbuing your home with this beautiful energy of compassion and wisdom or wherever you are. Some of you might actually have gone to a different place. Sometimes people do that. We had two flash snowstorms today and um, actually got a, a several inches of um, snow. So it's uh, quite beautiful. We do live in quite an amazing, beautiful world, don't we? And yet it's also a heartbreaking world and Maybe part of our practice is just navigating that whole spectrum of heartbreak to wonder or, or heartbreak to joy. It's going to come in my talk. It's not the title or subject matters directly, but it seems to be on our minds these days. How do we navigate the heartbreak of this world and Know that heartbreak is a companion of joy, that they come together. I thought I'd start by reading our retreat description. I like to do this myself so I can remember what we've promised you all. In our meditation practice, we seek to strengthen and balance the force of love with radical grounding and the truth of impermanence. In the deep silence and stillness of winter, we will attune to our inner landscape and let our experience be the guide and teacher for developing an open heart and mind 
that can survive and thrive in all conditions of life. So here we are balancing love and wisdom, compassion and wisdom, and letting our own experience be our guide. Letting our own experience how teach us how to develop an open heart and mind that can thrive in any conditions, heartbreak or joy. Zen master Dogen, a famous, probably the most famous Zen master from. Um, Japan from, I believe, the 12th, 13th century. He said, in probably one of my most favorite lines around um, Buddhism, awakening is intimacy with all things. And so you could say that my whole talk is a commentary on that one sentence. <laughs> awakening is intimacy with all things. And just to start with, like, what, what happens when you hear that word intimacy and relationship to your meditation practice? How does it feel? Some of you, it might really resonate. Others of you, it might not be the best word. I think it, it could be another word for mindfulness. Settling into the, the feeling of that word, right? It has this feeling of, Closeness, right? Moving closer. Chaz was talking about that in the instructions, like moving closer to our actual experience. So intimacy has that sense of closeness. I looked it up online and the definition was close familiarity or friendship. Close familiarity or close friendship. So it has that kind feel to it also perhaps even a sense of softness. So familiarity, <laughs> I'm having trouble pronouncing that word, familiarity uh, is that, that, that uh, sense that can strengthen over time by repeatedly coming back, right? As we repeatedly come back to our inner landscape, to our own experience, we become familiar with it. And as we repeatedly connect our world around us, I'll talk about that a little later. As we get closer, we become more familiar. So we start with creating this close familiarity with ourselves. Who are we? <laughs> what are we? really good questions. We spend, uh, you know, we kind of spend our lives busy doing this and that, scrambling around sometimes. Lots we do on automatic and we rarely stop to take the time to ask those questions. And that's part of what retreat is. Who, who am I? What am I? <laughs> What's this? And so through our formal practice, through the informal practice, through the day, we cultivate this intimacy with our own being. 
and we orient towards our embodied uh, presence through our senses. And this leads us inwards into our full complexity as a living, breathing, vibrant human being. Some of you have noticed that complexity. Sometimes you're not so happy about it, right? The German matriarch, uh, Ruth Dennison, said, self-knowledge, darlings, is always bad news. <laughs> She'd say it with her German accent, which I, maybe I didn't do so well. Um, that's, that's that trepidation, right, that we open to all of the complexity of being a human being. And in this intimacy, we nurture this kind of relationship of trust and love with our own system, with our own heart, our own body. It can take time. Our heart needs to confirm that we're not going to boss it around, which, of course, we do. <laughs> and then we try not to do, and we learn about that. Are we going to be a, a true friend? So as you all know, this intimacy is when we turn towards our, our own experience as it is, not as we wish it were or want it to be or think it should be as a good meditator, but rather, what is it? What is this? And, and it's a shocking experience at times, especially earlier in our practice, I think is as we get more familiar with who and what we are, we're not shocked quite as much. But I remember in my early practice being absolutely shocked to discover that it wasn't quite as together as I had thought I was. <laughs> when I first started meditating, I thought I was, you know, pretty together. And um, I cracked in a good way. I cracked open and it was like, wow, there is a lot going on in here that I didn't know about. A lot of emotional experience that I had kept such under such tight control because I didn't want to feel it or didn't think I could bear to feel it. Loneliness, grief, anger, fear, judgment, just to name a few. And while it seemed maybe like bad news, I remember going into my teacher. It was actually Joseph Goldstein going into him and saying, oh, and I'm feeling this and that. And, you know, I'm feeling grief and anger and irritation and loneliness. And, and, and I can't remember them all, but, you know, a long list, like 10 different emotions. And, and I was really upset. And he just looks at me and he said, what's the problem? And it just, it, you know, stopped me in my tracks. That was, you know, almost 40 years ago. And I still remember that moment. I was like, oh, maybe there's no problem here. Just to get that is so freeing, right? He goes, go take a walk. You know, he encouraged me to take care of myself and to find my way back to balance. Just like Chaz and I encourage all of you to take care of yourselves when it when it's, feels like it's a bit much. And, and as we learn to do that, we, 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 we trust ourselves. We have confidence that we can actually meet the heartbreak of this world. 
that we're stronger than we thought we were. I think we underestimate our strength sometimes. Out of fear, right? We pull back. And a meditation is, you know, we turn towards and we come towards and we get familiar with and we start to, um, we continually start, we continue to develop our own confidence and strength that we can be open-hearted in this world. So this intimacy within ourselves is, is a genuine path to awakening. There's a poem that many of you might be familiar with, but I feel like it describes this so well, an enlightenment poem of a Japanese nun named Uzumi Shikibu. Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. I knew myself completely, no part left out. So we feel the freedom, right? The poem feels free. (laughs) We feel the freedom of that no part left out, whether it's grief or anger or sleepiness, craving, restlessness, confusion. But it's held in this big open sky, right? Watching the moon at midnight. And as we meditate more, we too feel that we know ourselves completely, no part left out, nothing exiled. I should say we know ourselves more completely. I'm still quite willing to be surprised sometimes, and it does still happen. And that's good. I wouldn't want to get too arrogant, spiritually arrogant. So, so we're used to knowing things right through the mind. We're used to, um, Chaz was pointing to this yesterday, and I think about this a lot. I think about it. <laughs> I feel it. We're used to figuring things out cognitively, right? And that's what we tend to trust. And so we come to our practice, and, and that's what we hope we can do. We hope we can think our way to freedom. And certainly it's helpful to use our cognitive mind. <laughs> We're doing that when we give a talk and you know, we give frameworks and um, instructions, all of that's from the cognitive mind and it's very helpful. Um, but most helpful when it's, when it's used as pointers that point back to this inner landscape, our own experience. And, and coming into this inner um, landscape involves feeling feeling our bodies, feeling our heart, feeling our emotions. So we're actually learning to trust a different pathway to freedom, not a thought out cognitive pathway, but an embodied feeling pathway. It's more intuitive. 
it's more mysterious. You can't nail it down quite as easily. In the mind, we can get everything all nice and neat and lined up. And, you know, the Buddha had many, many lists. Um, and we like those for the security, and that's okay, no problem. But this inner landscape that we contact through embodiment and feeling, it's a little bit wilder. So when we fixate on the cognitive, we really trap ourselves in a kind of disembodied world. And I think this is one of the great pains of modern um, society and modern schooling, unfortunately, more and more is like that. Um, we limit the ways we perceive the world and, there we, and therefore we limit our freedom. When we, when we only rely on this cognitive way of knowing things. And we kind of lose touch with these vast realms of the inner life. And this intimacy that I'm talking about, this intimacy is not a, you know, it's not a thought out intimacy, it's embodied feeling. So there's this sense of alienation that comes when we, live in the cognitive mind. And we all know that. I think it's, it's widespread in modern life. The last, you know, three or four or 500 years anyway. <laughs> um, and we want to come, we want to go home. That's what we want. That's what our hearts want. They want to, to be here, to belong, to be um, embedded in the world, which happens through this embodiment and feeling and intuitive kind of relationship. It doesn't happen. The cognitive separates, separates to figure out what to do with. And sometimes, again, that's useful. But that separation, that it, that's what's alienating to us. And that's what we're healing. One day I was uh, walking by a salt marsh and I saw a group of children um, studying. This was, I think, almost you know, a year and a half ago, maybe. And they, I was glad that they were actually had a class at that point and they were outside studying. And there was this one little kid and he, um, he didn't know what to do. It was clear he was a little confused. So the teacher gave him a um, ruler and, and a piece of paper. And she, she didn't seem to know what to tell him to do either. She's kind of, um, okay, take these and uh, measure something. <laughs> and I was, I was kind of heartbroken at those instructions. I was kind of hoping, you know, that maybe she'd say, go sit by the marsh and listen and smell and hear what's happening and feel your body and, and then come back and tell me what you learned. So the first way measure something, the cognitive mind, and then the way I was describing more 
this intuitive embodied feeling mind. So our, our meditation practice um, helps us to reclaim our home in embodied presence. I was thinking today about this sense of belonging, this kind of embodied heartfelt um, meditation. Actually, what we learn is that we belong here. We learn a kinship with all beings. So we have this inner intimacy, close familiarity, and then we look outwards to the world around us. Or, or more said, we. We feel our um, relationship to the world around us. So we develop this close familiarity or this friendship with all things. Dogen said, awakening is intimacy with all things. So how do we become close to the world around us? How do we do this? By letting it in. The environmentalist Paul Shepard said, to be present in the world means to make space for the world to be present in you. There's this relationship, right? This reciprocity, this relationship that we have with the world. Dogen again said, let your heart go out and abide in things. Let things return and abide in your heart. You can't figure that one out cognitively, can you? Some of you might be trying. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> you can only feel it. Let your heart go out and abide in things. Let things return and abide in your heart. You can feel the belonging. You can feel, we can feel the healing of alienation. And the senses are our portals to the outside world. They're the portals between the interior and the exterior, our inside and outside. That's how we let life in is through our sense experience, our embodied sense experience. So hearing, smelling, Tasting, feeling the body, seeing. It's kind of magical, actually. So this statement, intimacy, um, awakening is intimacy with all things. My understanding of it has deepened over the years. When I first heard it, I just thought it was really sweet. <laughs> and it is sweet. But when we start going into that phrase, we start to really understand how deep it is. Because 
to bring intimacy to this full fruition, we have to dissolve what separates and shields us from the world around us. We have to dissolve the barriers in the heart and mind. (laughs) What are those barriers? Greed, hatred, and delusion. The three roots of suffering. The three Buddhist roots of suffering. So for this intimacy to really flourish, we need to dissolve greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed, you can feel the estrangement. So there's an estrangement when greed, hatred, and delusion are present. You can feel greed. It, it, it takes a place in the heart where we could have connection with something. <laughs> and it kind of smothers what we could have connection with. It smothers it with what we want. Smothers intimacy. Aversion hopes not to meet the experience at all. That's obviously not intimacy. That one's clearer. And delusion anesthetizes us. It obscures and dulls any potential intimacy. So we see this for ourselves. We feel it for ourselves. When greed is present, we we explore that. Oh, what happens to the connection when there's greed present? What happens when aversion is present? What happens when dullness, confusion, and delusion are present? So we heal through this process, we heal the estrangement, we heal the um, separation. And what we see that we transcend in this world, we transcend greed, hatred, and delusion. We don't transcend the world. Sometimes we wish we could transcend the world. but what we're really trying to heal is the estrangement of greed, hatred, and delusion. Still have a lot to say. Risa, could you um, mute everybody? Somebody seems to be unmuted and it's distracting. Thank you.
there's a book called The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating. I've mentioned it before, maybe in this retreat, I don't know. Um, and the author, Elizabeth Tova Bailey, she suffers from this challenging disease that she has to be in bed all the time. And a friend gives her a wild snail um, as a pet. <laughs> so she puts a snail in a terrarium next to her bed and she gets really close to this snail, right? She gets to know how it uh, operates, its decision-making habits, defenses. And then as her life gets, as she recovers and she goes back to her normal life more, she finds that the intimacy with the um, snail wanes. It's not like it was before. And what, you know, what she learns and sees from this is that intimacy needs um, time and quiet. And so we're challenged to find this in our own lives, right? In the cacophony of our busy lives, we're challenged to find time for this intimacy. Retreat gives us the opportunity to remember it, to slow down to the pace of a snail if you would like to. So with practice, we become uh, intimate with all manifestations of life, including snails as a possibility, <laughs> um, ourselves, other people, trees, rocks, the earth, tables, breakfast, even the supposed inan supposedly inanimate. Dogen said intimacy with all things. What about a rock? What does it mean to co connect close with close familiarity with a rock? Do you have a rock as a friend? Perhaps I do. I have one out in the woods that I visit regularly and we're friends. They make great friends. Very solid and uh, grounded. Kind of on the quiet side. <laughs> but but the energetically, they're great friends. And I find that this sense of um, as we dissolve these barriers, as they become less uh, opaque and more transparent, these barriers of the heart, that we start to experience other beings as more alive, all beings, including rocks. <laughs> So that the, that the not so sentient view of the materialistic mind, we start to question that. And that comes out of this cognitive mind that objectifies. And, and um, I think a lot of the, the, the destruction of our world um, these days comes out of um, having forgotten this intimacy with all things, this, this um, feeling into the world around us. And so the, the, the uh, cognitive mind that separates then objectifies. And we've, we've, we've developed the habit of objectifying the world. And then when we do that, when we other, other people, 
or when we other trees, make them other or rocks or the earth itself, um, then um, we, we, we lose the connection that engenders compassion and care. And so if we view the rest of this world around us as non-sentient, then, then we can do whatever we want with it. <laughs> but once we you know, establish that kind of sense of intimacy and close familiarity and feeling the aliveness of the world, then we have a relationship, right? And when we have a relationship, we take care. I think part of this shift and part of remembering this intimacy with all things is part of what needs healing in our culture. It's my environmental activism <laughs> to talk about it. To help us remember. And so with this um, intimacy with all things, we reclaim um, a relationship with life that is one of receptivity and respect and mutuality. And we feel the individuality of, of things and how they mingle with us. This is all actually another description of not self, <laughs> non-separation. We see that we enter our with the world around us. And we see that everything has a right to exist just because it is. In the book, Under a White Sky by Elizabeth Colbert, she writes about the effort to save the endangered pupfish at Devil's Hole in, um, I don't remember what state that's in, but a place called Devil's Hole, and they have these little pupfish that are endangered. And uh, somebody asked a, a biologist there named Phil Pister, they asked him, what good are pupfish? And he responded, what good are you? <laughs> Which seemed to me an excellent response. <laughs> we understand that all beings have a right to exist just because they are, just because we are. That kind of respect and mutuality. So how are we going to respond to this world with so much heartbreak, All right? So when we open to intimacy with all things, when we open um, both to our in, inner landscape, but to the outer landscape, which includes the natural world and other people, um, it's not so easy. Right. And especially during difficult times, I, I think we're in difficult times. I know for some people, we've always been in difficult times. <laughs> but it does seem that there's an acceleration of, of challenges in the world right now. Both individually, the pandemic, just really honoring the two years that. You know, two years, it's a long time. People struggling with maybe loneliness or um, wanting some space. <laughs> two extremes, perhaps, to the um, living situations. 
economic struggles, housing, food, the world around us. How do we touch this, this heartbreak? So I would say that heartbreak is a natural consequence of a life of relationship, which I've been talking about. Whether it's with your spouse or your children, your dog, a tree, Even the Buddha apparently felt heartbreak. Legend has it that the loss of his disciples, his two main disciples, he described as like the sun and the moon going out of the sky. That sounds like heartbreak to me. Being open-hearted feels wonderful, and it's also heartbreak heartbreaking. It's the price we pay. Heartbreak is a price we pay for embeddedness in the world. It's the price we pay for um, healing that estrangement, healing that alienation. We sign up to live in the heart of the human predicament. You could say that we live in an unfixable world, the heart of the human predicament. And we sign up to love in the middle of that world. It's okay to let our hearts break. We're strong enough. We doubt it sometimes, (laughs) but we are strong enough. Perhaps we can even willingly sign up for it because the near neighbors of heartbreak are compassion and joy. Heartbreak is said to be the proximate cause of compassion. So letting ourselves be touched by this world, by the suffering in ourselves and in others and in the world around us. Sometimes it's heartbreaking. And yet when we soften into that, when we don't resist it, what emerges is kindness and care. So can we make room in this inner landscape for heartbreak and all its manifestations, whether it's grief, fear, loneliness, anger, I try to um, make sure that I feel some good heartbreak every every so often. 
<laughs> because if I don't, what I've noticed is that um, I get clogged up. <laughs> the heart gets clogged with kind of confusion and irritation, maybe. That's a good sign that I need to feel some heartbreak. And um, I don't, you know, schedule it. I just have the circumstances come together. Often when I'm sitting on my rock, for example, my rock is a good companion for heartbreak. And um, I just let my heart feel it. I make room for it. Sometimes there are tears. And then afterwards, there's this um, sense of deeper connection and joy, actually. The world wakes up. <laughs> the, world the world doesn't wake up. The world wakes up for me. <laughs> I feel the world more um, closely by making space in my heart for that response. The love strengthens. Reminds me, I was just thinking, reminds me of when my father was dying. When I was with him, when I could make room for the, the, the heartbreak, I loved him more deeply. So perhaps when we make room for our heartbreak in relationship to the world, also to whatever's going on in our own lives, when we make room for that, we love more deeply. Of course, we do this carefully <laughs> and with why, with wisdom. You know, the whole question of, um, of uh, what skillful effort came up in the groups today. Because there's so much heartbreak in the world right now, right effort might look different than it has looked in the past. It might not be the time to put the nose to the grindstone. Is that how it's said? Um, I, don't, I always mix up my metaphors. Um, it might not be time to, to, you know, push too hard. <laughs> it might be time to be kind. It might be time to nourish. We might need a lot of nourishment. When there's heartbreak, nourishment's important. I went out in the woods after the snow to, uh, this afternoon and just um, delighted in the beauty of the snowy landscape. Or we might delight in the nourishment of a hot cup of tea. It doesn't mean we're not practicing anymore because we taste the tea, we feel it as it goes down the throat and warms our, our, our esophagus and, and, and the stomach. And yes, at times we might have energy and then we might, you know, stretch. When there's energy, a little bit of stretching is important in our practice just to see where our limits are <laughs> and to expand them. But when the energy is not so high, then, it, then we might um, nourish. So it can be helpful to know um, 
your energy patterns of the day. And because um, most people have fairly consistent energy patterns um, and to respond to those. I on retreat when my energy is low, that's when I do, you know, showering or, or um, yogi jobs, meditate, you know, work or work period. I do all that when the energy is low. It helps me stay balanced. When the energy's high, I do more sitting and walking. So don't, don't um, confine yourself to a predetermined, you must, <laughs> you must look good as a meditator, do it right. Feel your heart, feel what your heart needs right now. That's part of that intimacy with our own inner landscape and part of the um, the friendship is 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 listening, right? Good friend listens and responding with what's um, appropriate and helpful. So sometimes we 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 sit through heartbreak, whatever's happening, and sometimes we rest. You know, life is kind of intense, so we do pull back a little bit. Our heart might, our mind might take thought vacations. That's okay. Sometimes it needs a vacation. <laughs> needs to make up some world in the mind and get lost in it for a while. You'll come back. Sometimes we need to numb out. That's okay. Can we be kind towards numbness? Our heart works hard. It deserves a break every once in a while. We don't demand more of the heart, body, mind than it can give right now. So we let it rest and then eventually it, it, it gets energy. It hears the beckoning of the world and it, it responds, wants to come back to this intimacy with all things. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas said, this is, this, I, I love this phrase, I think about it these days. Thomas Aquinas said, we are universe capable. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm not totally sure, but it feels good. We are universe capable. Maybe what it means is that we can um, learn to, to embrace it all, no part left out. And we can start to trust that we're universe capable. Our practice can teach us that. We're stronger than we know. So I have a couple of poems to end with. And sometimes they explain it all better than a well thought up out conceptual description. 
This is from Rashani Ray called The Unbroken. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. And I want to end with Wendell Berry. Geese appear high over us, pass, and the sky closes. Abandon as in love or sleep, holds them to their way, clear in the ancient faith. What we need is here. And we pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. Let's sit for a minute to end our time together. And we pray to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. Please enjoy your continued practice. Uh, maybe some eating meditation, intimacy with all things, intimacy with tasting our food. And then we'll gather uh, again at uh, 6.30 for some uh, metta meditation. Take good care of yourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.